three months after Sophie died, uh, I hit a wall and, and, you know, I had a very traumatic, uh, emotional experience with my wife. And I just said, I need to see somebody, you know, and I made that just that conscious decision that it was time. I can no longer, um, you know, balance everything in my head and, and not seek help. So, um, with some of the tricks that my, my therapist taught me, um, support system between my army family and my wife and my, you know, my extended family. Um, you know, I, I, my, my main thing is, is you'd have to allow yourself to feel it. You know what I mean? I think that's, a, that's the first thing that I, I, I do. Allow yourself to feel it, but try not to dwell on it because, you know, you start dwelling on it, you start getting into the depression and the, and the, the loneliness and everything. So what I try to think of is what would Sophie want from me? Welcome to the Growth and Thriving Podcast, where we celebrate the lives of people who have overcome great adversity and examine the tools and techniques by which people grow and create lives that feel like thriving. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak, and I'm really excited to have you with me today because today we're talking to uh, a, a friend of mine who is a, a husband, a father, a lifelong soldier, or not a lifelong, but a career soldier in the U.S. Army. Um, a badass grappler, both in wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, and, and like I said, a really decent human and good friend. Uh, please welcome Ruben Gonzalez. Hey, you Jerry. Come on, man. So what we normally do, Ruben, is I, I normally have people, you know, I gave a brief introduction. Why don't you just talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things you have in your life and, and how you got here from wherever, where start wherever you like. Uh, All right. Or whatever. And tell yeah. us. So I, um, I've been in almost 20 years. Next month will be a uh, 20 year mark, March, March 14th. Oh, first off, I need to say happy birthday to my lovely wife, Becca. She, she deserves that. So happy birthday, baby. Birthday. Uh, so 20 years next month. Uh, so it's been, been a long journey. Four deployments, two of those were combat tours early on in um, the Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then um, they, you know, get some, some, uh, mental scar tissue build up from that you get some some uh, so PTSD some 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 wounds from friends friends passing and, and whatnot and then you I have my two other deployments to one to Europe one to Kuwait uh, and still you know time away from home stuff like that so it's been a long uh I always call it my crazy effed up adventure that's what I call my my life one crazy effed up adventure um and you first on this podcast, just okay. so you know, because I, I, I have to, right? I, right. <laughs> you know how I talk. I can't. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, it's one crazy fucked up adventure. That's what I, what I would definitely call my life. But it's, it's been an adventure. Um, but I'm going to highlight something more about something, a recent trauma of mine. I'll give you a little background. About, uh, about six or seven years ago, my wife and I split. Um, she, you know, joint, we, we agreed that she would uh, get uh, full-time custody of the kids with visitation whenever I wanted. Um, so that left me kind of um, alone, empty nest syndrome for a while, uh, living, bouncing around from place to place between deployments. Um, even brought me to live with you for a little bit, which is how we, we came so close and then um, became you such a good friend to me. Uh, but about now, it was, it was mid-2017. Um, I was deployed to Europe and it was hungry. I believe I was in Hungary at the time. I got a call from my ex-wife saying that uh, my daughter had to go to the hospital. Um, my daughter, Sophia, she had to go to the hospital. She was visiting my mother in Arkansas at the time. And um, so they originally just had a stomach ache. Originally they thought it might be her appendix, um, maybe a blockage or two, they weren't sure. Uh, they were hoping for the best, but they were they were taking all precautions. Uh, they ruled out the appendix, but there was still pain. 
And um, one day my mom called me and she just, uh, she just gave me the bad news up front. She said, Sophia has cancer. Um, it was confirmed that, that my nine-year-old little girl had cancer. Um, the worst, worst news that any parent could ever imagine is to find out your child has cancer. Um, you know, of course, you know, I, I, I didn't process it very well and it took me a little while to kind of gather my bearings. The army, of course, they acted quickly. My command got me home. I was home within 48 hours from, um, Europe, which if you know about, uh, military bureaucracy, that's, that's a feat in itself to get right. someone 48 hours. You can't buy a pencil in 48 hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're still trying to get it up through the, the levels to get approval. Right. Um, but so it was a pretty, it was pretty um, minor miracle that they got me through. So they flew me to, to Little Rock where my, my daughter and my mom were. Um, her mom was uh, driving down from, from Wisconsin and was going to meet me there. And so they, when we talked to them, they confirmed it was cancer. Um, they weren't sure what it was yet because they still had to do genetic testing on it. Uh, but they were, they, they knew she had to get to uh, back home and get on a uh, uh, treatment protocol quick, quickly because um, they were afraid that it was pretty aggressive um, just based on the size of the tumor, which was about the size of my fist. And it was kind of wrapped around her, um, her uterus area. So, we find we go home and we find out she has or we go to her home i wasn't living there at the time go to her home and we go to university of minnesota masonic children's hospital and they do all the genetic testing they, they come back and they say she has a form of cancer called alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma so it's, it's a mouthful but it's it's a very rare form of um of bone and tissue cancer that can spread in any, any soft tissue in your body, it can spread to. So you can imagine how much soft tissue you actually have inside your body. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a nasty one. Um, so, and we found out that literally one in a million children actually get this type of cancer. Oh. Um, and originally they gave her 33% chance of living in the first year. Hmm. And, and any parent say they'll take 33% and they'll take a five. You know, it could have been much worse at that point. So she went on her chemo treatment and chemo, excuse me. <sighs> chemo was, um, it was working well for her. She was getting sick. She lost her hair. Um, <clears throat> but about eight, nine months later, her, we found out that her tumor shrunk. So it was gone. And it was just like, out of nowhere, it was just, it was just gone. It was amazing. The doctors were, were amazed that it reacted so fast. So she was technically in, uh, it's called NED, no evidence of disease, and she was in recession, or uh, remission, excuse me. Remission. And so things were going well for about a year. She was, she was doing fine, grew her hair back. She looked like she was going to be able to have her life again. And I just, I, uh, I was actually on a second deployment at that point, about a year and a half maybe later. I was on a second deployment at that time, I'm just coming home visiting them for my, my time off after deployment and she has to go to the hospital again she's she's having you know three or four times a night she's throwing up she's she's having pain and finally they said okay so they did scans and we we're up at the minnesota hospital again and find out that uh she it's back she has cancer again and it's in virtually the same spot so they they it was very aggressive this time it was much more aggressive than it was last time it was spreading and so what the protocol was, what they, we all decided to do was to remove her bladder and her uterus. Mm -hmm. So she had a full hysterectomy at age 13 or age 12, excuse me. Yeah. So at age 12, she had a full hysterectomy and uh, her bladder was gone. They had to take it out. Um, and this was a last ditch effort because the, the cancer was spreading fast and so she basically was in and out of hospitals the next three months. Um, this was in, I want to say, September, October time. Um, I'm, if I get the timelines wrong, excuse me, it's just it's over three and a half years, all this stuff's happening. Um, but early December, her mother and I got called to the, or her mother was already there. So I got called up to the hospital and the doctors pulled us in and they said that the last scans revealed that her cancer had spread all throughout her lungs. Um, it was, they had, so, she had so many tumors in her lungs 
that there was too many to count. They said it was multiple, it was too many they could actually physically count. Um, it was, uh, so it was spreading throughout her lungs and then also down in her um, lower area again. And so what they told us at that point, they said there's nothing more that they can do for her. Mm -hmm. So she had to be told that she's going home on hospice and uh, she was more than likely going to die. So, you know, she, she cried, you know, I don't want to die, you know, don't let me die. And it was, it was probably the most heartbreaking thing I'd ever had to hear and, and endure. And her mother, you know, her mother had, had to endure more because she lived with her, of right. course. Um, so got her home and basically set her up on hospice. And uh, so her mother and stepfather took care of her on a daily basis while I came back to, to home and had to you know figure out the logistics of getting up there and staying up there and everything so um when they brought the nurses in you know day and night and mother and her stepfather were were you know taking care of her and i would come and stay from early morning to late at night i would go to a local hotel and we just we did just this thing we did and then um she made it to christmas so we got a christmas eve with her and her mom got christmas with her but it was, it was shortly after the night of Christmas where it was, she was so, her body was, was, was deteriorating to the point so badly where they had to basically up her medication. And it wasn't really, it wasn't a coma so much. It was just a medically induced sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and they just said it was a matter of time before her body just said no. And so the 26th went by, and then on the morning of December 27th of 2020, she took her last breath. Mm -hmm. So it's been, it's been rough. Wow. Yeah. As a parent, I, you know, I can't even imagine. And, and I don't say that, I don't say that lightly because, <clears throat> um, so I, lost a very close loved one to cancer as well. When I was seven years old, my mother died from cancer. She was 34, I was seven. And throughout most of my life, I would adamantly argue that being seven years old, and my mother, not that different from Sophie, went through uh, four years of battling illness, of losing her hair, of in and out of the hospital, all kinds of atrocities. And I would have argued that watching her deteriorate and die over the course of four years when I was seven, I mean, she got sick when I was three or four and then died when I was seven, um, was maybe the worst, most painful thing I could ever imagine. And so through a lot of my life, I actually had a hard time with empathy because people would complain about things that upset them or hurt them or and by comparison it just seemed like nothing to me until I had children right um because even though going through what I've gone through in, in the pain of watching my mother die when I was young I think watching anything happen to my children would be worse and so I couldn't I couldn't even imagine but what I what I do sort of know because you're wearing your Sophie's warrior shirt and yeah. actually I actually feel silly now because I'm not wearing I have a fight with Sophie shirt that I'm not wearing but um but uh you know you gave highlights of like the primary things that happened but you know you guys had a Facebook group for Sophie's warriors where I mean you raised some funds and things to help with medical expenses but also sort of detailed her day-to-day -day life. And so while it sounds like, well, she went in and got diagnosed and then had treatment and then got better and then got sick again, it was really much more complicated than that day-to-day. -day. There were good, more good, bad days. There was in and out of the hospital. There was a lot of sort of day-to-day -day ups and downs. Um, Correct. That went on that we, you know, we got to, to see from being a part of the Facebook group. Um, and there's a, there's just two things that I wanted to highlight and I want to highlight them because I think you're, you're probably too humble to bring them up, but 
I also hope that maybe you could address them and talk about them a little bit. The first is you mentioned that you bounced around a lot and ended up staying with me for a little while as part of that. Um, but that's not really the whole story as I understand it. You know, the, the whole story is that you didn't have a home in Colorado Springs when you were at Fort Carson up here. Um, you didn't rent a house or an apartment because you were sending every dollar you could home to your ex-wife. I was sending a lot, a lot of extra money to, to help out with whatever I could. Right. And so instead of having a home, instead of having a place to live, you would system, I mean, you were deployed for like more than a year at a time, but then you would be home and you would be home in Colorado Springs, either find somebody who had a room to rent because the, you know, apartments are very expensive here. And so you would either rent something really cheaper or when you stayed with me, there was no rent so right. that, so that you could, but, you know, and I mean, I, that sounds great. Like you lived rent free, but you had a room in my house. I mean, I, you know, you spent your, as a grown adult, right. And, and a non-commissioned officer in the U S army, you lived in a single bedroom in my house. Um, in order to send as much money as you could home to help your ex-wife take care of Sophie. And I think, you know, to me, that that's pretty remarkable. Um, that's a lot of sacrifice to be a grown man and, and live in a bedroom in somebody's house. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think it was, it was something I didn't even think twice about. It was something I was willing to do and willing to make. So, you know, I've always felt like I could have done more but there's, you know, after the fact, you, you, uh, you have so many regrets and so many uh, coulda, shouldas, you know, but that's, that was just something that I felt like I could do, so. Yeah. The other piece um, that stands out in my memory, because you were living in my house, I got to, you know, uh, there were times when you'd be maybe in the kitchen or something and, and on the phone, and I, remember overhearing one conversation that you had with Sophie, where if we, you know, a few minutes ago, we said she was in and out of the hospital a lot, right? It wasn't as simple as, yeah. well, she got sick, she got better, and then she got sick again. She right, right, right. In and out of the hospital a lot, which I imagine is really tough for a child, right? For, I mean, it's tough for an adult, so I can only imagine for a young person, and I, and I guess on one particular day, she had to have some treatments or tests or something that were uncomfortable, maybe being pricked with needles and such. And she, I, and I don't really know, I just kind of overheard some of it because um, we were in the same room in the house and she must've been kind of snotty, I guess, with the doctors and maybe with your ex-wife, with her mom. And I remember you addressing her behavior. And I was trying to put myself in your shoes of having a child who was so sick that her life was on the line, was threatened, but still having to parent, right? You can't, you can't ignore bad behavior. Correct. Right. And, and I was so impressed with how you managed to strike a balance between compassion and understanding for what she was going through, which you expressed to her, right? Like it was clear you had compassion and empathy for what she was going through and still established the boundary with her about what was acceptable and what wasn't and how she treated other people. And as somebody who is a parent, as somebody who wrote a, a doctoral dissertation for my PhD, I wrote my dissertation on fatherhood. <laughs> I run a fatherhood group on Facebook. I was so impressed by that conversation that it's years later and it still is very fresh in my mind. Wow. Yeah, I, I honestly couldn't even recall that conversation, but yeah, I was... It was it was hard because you want you want your child to be able to to express her discomfort and not not discount what she's going through, but she has she had to know that they weren't there to hurt her. They weren't there to they weren't her enemy. And 
they were the ones that were trying to save her life. So she needed to be aware of that and to treat them as such. So it was, it was something that I just, it was just reactionary really um, more than anything, you know? So, so I appreciate you saying that. So that hopefully that that's telling good telling sign about, you know, my, my techniques, I guess. Well, and to me, I guess the other piece that sort of jumped out, the piece that stays with me is my assumption. And, and unfortunately we'll never know because Sophie's not here to, to speak on it, but my assumption is that it imparted a bit of normalcy into her life, right? Um, so much of her life for a nine-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old was abnormal. And to me, there's like nothing more normal than a parent correcting you when you've had an attitude with your mom and the doctors, right? right? And I think in her situation, it could have been very easy to just overlook it because of what she's going through. But I got, I, I've got to believe, I would bet good money that on some level, it felt good to her to be corrected and treated like a normal kid. Yeah, that, that was one, one chief, um, I won't say complaint, but um, something she vocalized a lot is that she, she wants to have a normal life. She just wanted to be a normal kid. Why can't she be normal? Why? Why God give this to her, you know, the, and any sense of normalcy we could ever give her on multiple occasions, you know, we, we could, we would. So I think that would, that would make, that would stand to reason that that would be fall in line with that, the normalcy of what she, she wanted. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. I try to put myself in your shoes a lot. Um, and I don't, I don't know how I would react trying to parent a child who was in that sort of a predicament. Right. Cause you, you know, it would have been very easy to, to just let her go about it and just excuse it right. as, you know, she, Oh, she's let her, let her, whatever. But uh, it was, it was important to me for her to understand that, that at that point we, we were still, you know, under the, under the assumption she was going to live. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be a good human being. So, what, what other assumption could you have right i mean right no yeah no you, you, you until the day they told me she was going to hospice i was full you know full bore you know this is we're going to pull through this yeah and then and then i try to imagine going into work every day in the u.s army and and uh, correct me if i'm wrong but you're in the infantry no Oh, no, no, no. I've been in infantry. I've been in infantry units. I've been in uh, cav units. I'm a mechanic. Oh, mechanic. Okay. Well, but I, I was in the, the infantry division. Okay. Right. Right. And, and mechanic is one of those, one of those career fields. So I, when I was in the military, I was a medic, right? I was a psychologist. Right. And so if we got deployed, we were still non-combatants, right? We still stayed on the FOB. We were in the mental health clinic and we would carry weapons but we were only allowed to, to engage if we were protecting ourselves or our patients. So as long as the enemy didn't breach the FOB and didn't come into the <laughs> health clinic, we never fired a weapon, right? We never engaged. Um, mechanic is one of those career fields where you get tapped like, hey, come on this convoy. Mm -hmm. You're a combatant. Yeah. yeah during, during my second tour, we were, that's basically what we were. We were, we would do mechanics, but if we needed us for, Convoys for security, you're going. Right. And so I'm trying to imagine having this situation going on at home and going into work. Yeah. You know, and, and the reason it's important is, is because regardless of how you feel about the wars in Iraq or Afghanistan, regardless of people's political affiliations, regardless of any of that, you know, if you're cookie, you know, if you're flipping burgers at McDonald's and you're a little bit careless in your job, the consequences are much smaller. You know, if you're a greeter at Walmart or you work at Target or something, the consequences of, of having an off day are much smaller than having an off day when you're on a combat deployment. Correct. And there's also two, twofold to that too, is, is the level that I had reached professionally, I, I was a senior leader. Right. I'm a senior leader in the military and I was a platoon sergeant at the time. So not only do I have my own career in my hands, I have the career of 92 other people right. to guide them and, and, and make sure they're taken care of. 
So my personal needs and wants were always put on the back burner to ensure that I wasn't neglecting them right. as well. So, you know, that was, that was probably the balance was on professionally versus personally was probably the hardest thing for me, which wow. in the military, you know, they teach you to compartmentalize and that really put to the test my ability to compartmentalize things. Yeah. I don't have a hard time imagining you just because of how I know you. I don't have a hard time imagining you putting others, other people's needs ahead of your own. That seems to me like something you do very naturally. What's harder for me is I'm trying to imagine you having troops who, who are your subordinates, right? Who you're in charge of, who are having whatever problems they're having at home and needing whatever, needing to talk about it, needing some accommodations made, needing um, something from you. And again, like comparison, right, is like the root of disaster, right? As soon as we start comparing ourselves to other people in any kind of way, it's usually disastrous. But I'm trying to imagine, you know, some, some soldier coming to me talking about having maybe marital difficulties at home, right? And, and needing some help or some counsel or some sort of services or accommodation and feeling, you know, trying to help this person and take their, their difficulties really seriously, even though it feels really small compared to what I'm going through. Fortunately, I, um, earlier in my career when I was a staff sergeant, I, was, I worked in a, in a unit called the Warrior Transition Unit. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. you, you know about that. It's the Army's unit where they send um, wounded and injured soldiers to rehabilitate with that they have complex medical care issues. And um, I, I had a level of empathy just growing up. I think I'm a very empathetic person by nature. But um, what that job taught me to do was to look at every single problem like it's your own problem. Um, when you're how would you feel if you needed this done? What would you want done? What, you know, how, how personal it is for you if that was you. So that job really, it helped me grasp more of a, of a personal, a personal uh, relationship with, with soldiers and, and the problems that they're going through. So I think that really helped me put the mindset of when, when a soldier comes to you, for one, they're trusting you right. with that problem hoping that you'll take care of it and and two that that it's your job to look at that problem like if that were you how would you want that treated it in 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 at the in the moment that's the biggest thing going on in their life yeah so just because because in comparison to your tragedy or your struggle don't project that onto them because they have their own struggle and that's what's important right now. Yeah. They'll fix that and then you can, you know. What I can tell you from my experience, Ruben, is that lots of people get that kind of training and so many of them still fucking suck at it. Um, they really, there's something about the character of somebody and you're, you're one of these people um, who can do that right who can put their their personal suffering aside and treat somebody else's issue as though it's their own you know um so one of the things that's interesting to me and maybe you can talk about this a little bit is so you have you know you you already said you know you talked you talked mentioned it and kind of moved on quickly but there's grief from friends and colleagues who are lost in combat. There's trauma from combat experiences and, and maybe from other areas of your life too. I mean, people have trauma outside the military too. So there's trauma. I'm, and I'm certain that there's both trauma and grief related to this years long situation with Sophie's health and her death. And 
for all the news and all the things we hear about soldiers with PTSD, right, and, and violence and domestic violence and alcohol use problems and drug problems and, you know, arrests and all these kinds of things, you still manage to be a responsible husband, a loving father, um, have a successful career, still active duty in the army without any issues. I'm, I'm wondering what kinds of things you do, what practices you have, how you take care of yourself in your day-to-day -day life that helps you, you know, manage and thrive despite having these accumulating struggles. Um, first, I have to give a lot of credit to my wife. She, uh, she lost a child, um, I want to say 17 years ago. Uh, when, when we obviously weren't together, she, when he was a two, two years old. So she had her own personal trauma and her own grieving process and, and she knew what to expect. So every single time it would be a point where, where you know, I needed to hear something or didn't need to hear something or, or however, she, whatever she needed to be for me, she was mm -hmm. because she knew what I needed before I even knew that I needed it, you know? Um, and <clears throat> the biggest thing for me, at, at first it was hard. It was, it was hard because I, I, when you're in the military, you know, you're taught to put it in your rucksack and keep moving. You know what I mean? Tuck that, tuck that away because that's not gonna help you doing your job. You can't, you can't feel, because the feeling is, is, a, is you know, a liability, you right. know? Because you have to, you know, project this air of confidence and toughness and, and you know, whatever. Um, so at first, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to, I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to see a counselor. I didn't want to, to, um, you know, talk about it. I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to push through it. Like I always have my entire life, all the traumas that I've gone through, you know, just, just barrel through them, you know, and about, I'd say, three months in, I hit a wall. And three months to what, Ruben? After Sophie died. After Sophie died. Okay. Three months after Sophie died, uh, I hit a wall, and and you know, I had a very traumatic, uh, emotional experience with my wife, and I just said, I need to see somebody. You know, and I made that just that conscious decision that it was time I can no longer, um, you know, balance everything in my head and, and not seek help. Nice. So um, with some of the tricks that my, my therapist taught me, um, support system between my army family and my wife and my, you know, my extended family, um, you know, I, I my, my main thing is is you'd have to allow yourself to feel it. You know what I mean? I think that's, a, that's the first thing that I, I, I do. Allow yourself to feel it, but try not to dwell on it because, you know, you start dwelling on it, you start getting into the depression and the, and the, the loneliness and everything. So what I try to think of is what would Sophie want from me? You know, what would she want me to be happy or she want me to be sad and crying over her all the time? You know, and... Um, so when I, when I get down or sad, I would, I would allow myself to cry. I'd allow myself to feel, but then, you know, I heard that little voice, you know, saying, okay, daddy, you know, it's time, yeah. time to, time to get up. And fortunately she made me this, um, this baby Yoda is our thing between me and her, the baby Yoda. Um, we, that's like, that's like our, our mascot, memorial mascot, I guess you'd say. So I collect all things baby Yoda. Well, um, my wife got a voice box of Sophie to record um, little, excuse me, better, I got up early for PT this morning, um, a little voice box recording. And it was, it's a, it's a, it's a personal recording between um, her and me. But basically it says, you know, anytime you, you miss me, just look up and I'm watching, I'm, I'm watching over you. Yeah. And every time I need that, I listen to that and I squeeze it and I listen to it. Um, you know, I used to cry myself to sleep every night, you know, and cause the day would be me trying to white knuckle through the day, yeah. 
I would just, after my wife would fall asleep, I'd cry for an hour, just, you know, for no reason, not for no reason, but just, oh, just out of nowhere. Um, but I think the biggest thing that I do is I allow myself to feel, um, but I don't dwell. I think is my biggest thing because, because I know, because I, I always tell my wife, I can feel the darkness coming back. You know, the darkness is creeping in and that's just my metaphor for, for the sadness that it, it, it can consume me, you know, yeah. consume me for a long time for the first, like I said, the first three months. Um, and so when, when I tell her that, you know, we, we, we talk and, you know, I see a therapist regularly now. Um, and I just, I've developed these, these, this mechanism of, of, you know, allowing myself to feel, but don't dwell and, and then just start searching for, for, you know, positivity, you know, and the good things in my life. And, and, you know, and then I try and think of the memories of Sophie, the good times we had and, and the smiling faces. And, and even though she's not here anymore, you know, her memory is, is everywhere, you know? So I think that, I think that's, that's best I can really articulate it. Yeah. I think. What's, what's really, um, hitting me, what seems important to me um, in, in my role as somebody who like, I mean, this is a role I chose for myself. It wasn't given to me, but I do this podcast and I write a blog and I have these face group communities and I do them for the purpose of conveying information to folks, you know, about you know, my, my goal is, is really two things. One is to make the information accessible because not everybody has access to a therapist. If they don't have right. health insurance, it's expensive, you know? And so that's why um, the, the thing, the content that I put out is always free because right. I want it to be accessible. But the other piece to me that's really important, and I think you're doing a, a brilliant job without even trying of just demonstrating this is showing people what the reality of it looks like. When we talk about things like post-traumatic growth or growth and thriving, we talk about things like a gratitude practice or like um, self-compassion or a growth mindset. It's very easy in the course of the discussion or even in an academic setting to get the sense that it's all sort of like rainbows and unicorns, right? It's all sunshine and beauty. And, and I think the reality of it is that it's not. I think, and in fact, I would say that the folks who do roll up their sleeves and learn, oh, the other one is vulnerability, right? In order to have had this wall that you hit three months in with, your, with Becca, you had to be vulnerable with her. You had to let her see it, right? Going to therapy required vulnerability. It required allowing yourself to be seen, right? Without armor on, without um, sucking it up, so to speak, right? And don't get me wrong. I really believe there's a time and a place to suck it up, right? You, you said in the military, you stuff, stuff it in your rucksack, right? But when you're out on a march, there's a lot of stuff in your rucksack that you don't pull out because it would get in the way of the march, right? But when you get to your destination, then yes, you take your rucksack off and you pull all that shit out and you go through it and you see what you need and what you don't. And so I, emotionally, I think it's the same, right? Like if, if you have to function, if you have to do something, then yeah, you stuff it in your rucksack. But at some point, you got to empty that rucksack out and examine it. And in my experience, both professionally as a therapist, in the military, in the civilian world, doesn't matter. And in my personal experience in my life, the folks who realize that they need to work on self-compassion, that they need to establish a gratitude practice, that they need to establish a mindfulness practice, that they need to work on developing a growth mindset, are the least sort of like sunshine and rainbows and kind of people, they're the grittiest, right? The grittiest people. They're grittier than the people who are just sucking it up to me, you know, because like you said, that darkness creeps in. And instead of pretending it's not there, instead of trying to act like it's not there, 
these are the people who roll up their sleeves and say, yeah, it's there, man. There's awful, awful feelings, awful thoughts, haunting memories and, and all kinds of darkness that if I allow it to dictate my life, it's actually dishonoring Sophie's memory or my mother's memory more than if I learn how to let it come, let it go and press on in a way that honors their memory. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, you know, she, she, she was so adamant about people not being sad around her and crying around her, especially when she was in her, her hospice they, they set up, they did a really good job. They set up the living room as the hospice area and they put a curtain so could, she could just have her space. Um, but she said, if you're going to cry, I don't want you in here. Because mm -hmm. if I'm, she, she was very blunt, very honest young lady. She said, if, I, if, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die with as many happy memories as I can. And it was just, it was just amazing to see this, this young woman process all of this at such a young age but it just kind of made you realize well if she's crying over it then you need to figure out a way to be happy you know and so um like you said you know the ones that are grittier figure out figure that out you know the ones that don't you know like you said they they, they we, we like we've been saying that they stuff it in the rucksack and keep going um but eventually that rucksack would get too full yeah. And you got to figure it out. You get yeah. too heavy for it and you're just going to crumble. Yeah. So. I, think, I think the important piece for people to recognize is that when you talk about like, well, you got to be happy, right? You got to figure out how to be happy. Um, what that looks like in real life is not exactly what it sounds like, right? It's mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes that happiness is a fucking fight. Sometimes it's a struggle. And the, the simple, the simple but difficult, right? It's not complicated but it's hard. Truth is that at any given point in our life, even when a parent or a child has just died, if we were to hit the pause button and as objectively as possible, examine all of the facts of our life in that moment, there are absolutely reasons to be miserable. There are absolutely reasons to be sad, to be resentful, to be um, angry, and at the same time, at I, the identical moment, there's also almost definitely always, not almost, there's always a, a handful of reasons to be grateful. There's a handful of reasons. What is that? Hunt the good stuff. That's what teaches in resiliency class. Yes, right, right. And so and so the idea is not that you ignore the stuff that's upsetting you. You can't ignore the loss of your baby girl. You can't ignore the loss of a parent. You can't ignore marital difficulties. You can't ignore mental health difficulties. The idea is that you acknowledge that all of this exists and you choose to give what you said, the good stuff, if you will, more power in your life, more influence. And so it is, it's a gritty, dirty process, you know? Um, and, and so my, my concern is that people not think that it all looks like sunshine and rainbows all the time. Oh no, when, when, when I speak of happiness, that could be as little as being able to get through the day without crying. Yeah. That could be being able to just function, being able to, cause I had the worst problem with focus for those first three months. I could not focus on anything. I couldn't, if I, if I read something, I couldn't repeat back to you three facts in that paragraph of what, you know, and, and it, it was affecting my work. It was affecting my home life. Um, and so, you know, the happiness, if you will, or just taking the win for the day would be so much as to just get through the day functional and, you know, and it's not even if you're not crying, it's just being able to take some positive yeah. from that being able to to look at that day and be like you know what nothing bad happened today so that's that's a win yeah. you know so um or if it did happen how did you respond to it did you respond to it positively do you respond to it negatively right. um, so 
the happiness really that's just kind of like a catch-all for positivity right positive reinforcement of your daily life and your actions in that daily life as opposed to just negatively handling everything so it doesn't have to be laughing and joking and and you know giggling so much as it's just finding positivity yeah really yeah and i think i think you know like you said like getting through a day where maybe in the course of the day for the first time in a long time you didn't feel the need to cry is is a win right absolutely it's also a win i think to get to get partially through the day realize that there's some something coming up and there's a need to cry crying it out and realizing it didn't it didn't debilitate you you can clean yourself up and and march on you know and, and i've had quite a few of those days since that since my realization i've yeah. I, that's been a pretty regular practice for me i would say at least a couple times a week yeah but that's a like, way to do, you know yeah like you said it, it doesn't have to cripple your whole day um, so a few times it has, right. don't get me wrong. A few times I've had to go to my boss and look, I can't be here. I need, I just need to go and then, okay, cool. Um, but for the most part, when you get into the, the habit of, of processing why you cried and allowing yourself, allowing it not to be a boomerang and just keep coming back to you, you know, um, then it gets easier to get to that. Yeah. And then you, you get to the point where you're, you're not crying so much. And, and, you know, some people look at like, like me at first, I was like, you know, am I, am I forgetting my little girl? Am I, am I not sad enough? Should I be crying more? Should I, should I be happy? Am I allowed to be happy? Right. You know, but then I go back to what she said is, you, you know, be happy around me. Yeah. So if she wanted me happy around her, she sure as heck want to be happy now. So um, she was a big inspiration towards the end of her life. I mean, her whole life, but towards the end of her life specifically, how she handled her situation. It, most adults would be embarrassed yeah. in comparison to, to this child who would just look him in the eye and laugh at him like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know? Um, so it, it really, I, would, I took a, bits and pieces of, of her fight and tried to apply them to, well, what would Sophie do? You know? And she would cry, but she'd let the needle sticker. And then guess what? A few minutes later, she'd be okay. Yeah. So it's kind of in, in retrospect, it's, she did all this stuff to show us how, you know, show me how to handle stuff. And I just have to, you know, let, pay attention and learn. And it's like a jigsaw puzzle. How do you piece yeah. it all together? It's almost like she knew her time was short and she had to be the example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, and that's, a, isn't it an interesting thought that we have, like, is it okay? Am I allowed to be happy? Right. right. Am, I not, am I not honoring her enough? You know, am I not, you said, am I not sad enough? Right. right. And what strikes me is like, I'm familiar with that, like that I've had that too. And I know that that's real. And then there's a part inside of me that also knows that, Allowing the sadness to, to take over is the, is the easy way out. Absolutely. Right? It absolutely. It, it requires much more. Your shirt says Sophie's Warriors. It requires a warrior to fight back the sad or, or not fight it back, but to allow it to come and allow it to go and find reasons to thrive anyway. It's easy to allow it to consume you. It's yeah. easy to allow it to just wash over you and just, you just lay there in your bed and just allow the pain to just control you. Feel it, yes, but for when it starts controlling you, which like it did for me my first few months, um, it'll cripple you, yeah. literally cripple you to the point where it was crippling me. It was crippling my mind. Yeah. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't focus. I, I was a bad dreams. I'd be, you know, crying every night. And I wasn't crying for the right reasons to try and let it process. I was crying because I was letting it overwhelmed me right. and I wasn't and once I was done crying I wasn't doing the whole bounce back thing it was just cry keep being sad go to bed and it was a, it was a vicious cycle that I was stuck in for a long time and my wife um she she was trying to help me out of it but once I started seeing therapy she her 
her uh, efforts were much better received because I was being basically told, you know, how to reminded of the tools that I already knew, right? But I just wasn't implementing because I just I didn't want to, you know. So set against help, I could do it on my own, you know. And and I realized that I couldn't, and you can't. Nobody can. And, And it's a funny thought, right? Like that I can do it on my own because because in any other circumstance, right, at work or or around your house or in any other circumstance, you would never refuse to use the resources that were available, right? That picture that's hanging up behind you, right? If you had to put a nail in the wall to hang that picture and I was handing you a hammer, you would never say, no way, I'm gonna put this in with my finger because we can use a hammer, right? No, the hammer's a resource. Of course you would use it, right? It's silly. If you have to go to the supermarket and the supermarket is five miles from your home, you would absolutely get in the car, right? There's no reason you would be like, no, it's we have to use the car. I'm walking to the supermarket. <laughs> Every other area, we have no problem using resources. But when it comes to this sort of thing with the personal vulnerability and our emotions, for some reason that becomes, in our mind, becomes weakness. And it's like, no, I have to do it without these resources. And the truth is it, it just works better if you use the resources, if the resources are, are the right ones anyway. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I wish I can remember, I, you know, growing up as a kid who lost his mom at a young age. And, and I grew up in, in a household that was not terribly nurturing that kind of thing. I grew up in a household where there's a lot of violence and a lot of yelling and a lot of um, not not tons of nurturing or compassion and warmth. And so I, I was kind of an angry kid. And at some point, I'm going to say I had this realization. I'm pretty sure that somebody said this to me, and I don't remember who, but I'm pretty confident that I'm not smart enough to have just come up with it on my own. So, um, but, you know, as a kid, as an adolescent and a young adult in my early twenties, I made a lot of really bad decisions with my life because I was angry and because I was emotional because I had all this repressed grief and sadness that I refused to deal with. And I was, I acted out a lot and I made some bad decisions. And I thought that I was justified in those decisions because of what I've been through. And somewhere along the line, I had the realization, probably because someone said it to me, that the things I had been through could either be the reason why I never get my life on track, or they could be the reason why I have to. And it was like the lights went, turned on. Right. <laughs> super clearly at that point. And it was like, right. This, what I've been through can be the reason why I have to live a certain kind of way to honor my mother's memory, to help other people who are struggling to, you know. It's funny you say that because I attribute um, being the father that I am to not having a father. I didn't have a father. He was gone when I was three months old, I think, or something. I don't have, I don't have any, I don't have any logged memories of him in my head. And I always, my whole mantra of growing up was that when I become a father, I have to be everything that he wasn't. Yeah. And because he was nothing, the opposite of nothing is everything. Right. So I had to be everything. Yeah. So I could have been like, well, he wasn't a good father. So I have an excuse to be a bad father. Just never be a father at all. Cause I don't know how, right. or I could have taken the path that I did or the mindset that I did and say, you know what? He's the reason that I have to be a good father. Have to figure this out. Yeah. So that's that plays right into, I know exactly what you're talking about when you say that because I could have chosen the other way. I could have chosen the fact that, oh, I, I have an excuse to be a bad father. I was never taught how to be one. So, you know, that's, I can be a bad father or whatever. So I get it. It's definitely a real thing. Yeah. And, and you, I mean, just to clarify, like, like you managed to figure out how to be a father to your children despite deployments, despite being moved all over the country, despite TDYs. And I mean, a lot of military folks lose more time with their family to TDYs than they do to deployments, you know? Um, You know, and for those who don't know, TDYs are like 
training opportunities where you get sent to whatever place to do, you know, six weeks of training here or 12 weeks of training here. You're still away from your family. You're not deployed into a combat situation, but you're not home, you know? Nope. And, and like I said, you, you managed to parent your, your kids despite those circumstances. Um, it would have been easy, I think, for you to do what you said, to be like, well, I had an absent father, so I don't know how to do this, and I'm being sent all over the place. And so, you know, I... Good I, luck. <laughs> well, right, yeah, yeah. Wish you the best. But, um, but it takes effort, right? It takes intention, yes. intention yes. to stay connected. Absolutely. So, okay. So, um, you were we, we were talking a little bit before we started this, and you were saying, even though you're coming up on 20 years, which is for most people retirement time in the army, Correct. you're looking to to hang out another couple of years. Yes. Yeah, because um, parenting. <laughs> yeah, my son Abraham, he's. He's a sophomore in high school, and um, in order for him to not have a disrupted education by either coming with me somewhere, wherever I retire to, or to move back with his mother, um, I'm going to, I won't say sacrifice, because I don't look at it as more like a sacrifice. I'm just going to continue my military career for another few years to allow him to have stability throughout high school and have one school for four years and um, graduate with his friends and his wrestling team and everything. So I'm just gonna stick it out for another couple of years, do station stability here, because the army will let me stabilize because he's a high school age child. Um, and then once he graduates, I'll drop those papers and it'll be around 23, I think 23 years by the time I end up getting out, so. Um, I'm, I'm noticing our time and I wanna be respectful of your time. Are there, are there things that you wanted to, hoped we would get to or that you wanted to share today that you feel like we haven't? Uh, no, I think, I think my, my, just based off of the, the structure of your, of your podcast and of your page in general, I think the primary objective that I wanted to get out was talking about, because it's growth, growth yeah. after. So um, I just wanted to share, you know, my experience because even if someone doesn't lose a child, they could, it could be, you know, recovering from drug addiction. It could be, you know, losing a big job and just, you know, losing your whole family. It could, it could, there's so many things that are life altering that aren't necessarily as traumatic yeah. for the, you know, my trauma isn't their trauma. Right. Like we were talking about earlier. Oh yeah. It doesn't have to be as big as this for still be, oh, back us home, um, for it to be traumatizing. So the same tools work regardless of the situation. So that's the biggest thing what I want to do is to make sure people didn't look at my extreme as so unique that it couldn't work for them. Yeah. And, and I think that's an important point. You know, I, I'm a big advocate of the saying, everybody's pain matters. Absolutely. Right. If, if you're sitting in the waiting room at the doctor, we don't, we're in the, emergency room or something <clears throat> certainly somebody who's at risk of bleeding to death will get immediate attention that's true right because they're in crisis and they need triage but generally speaking we don't go around the waiting room of the doctor's office and ask each person why they're there and then determine who deserves to go in and see the doctor based on how sick they are right yeah everybody deserves to be well and so whatever's ailing you requires treatment and everybody waits their turn and then everybody gets the treatment hopefully that they need. Um, and so I, I think that's that's a really uh, important point. What you reminded me of just now is there's this idea, I mean, if, if you wanna get academic about it and like go into, you know, write a paper or something, there's, it's a theory called life course theory. But what life course theory says, and it, to me, this is a really useful metaphor, <clears throat> is it says we can look at people's lives as a series of what they call transitions and trajectories. Okay. Uh, this, this theory was originally developed to try to understand why kids um, get into crime, 
right? Why they become juvenile delinquents, if you will. And the idea is transition. So, you know, you're born into whatever kind of household you're born into in whatever neighborhood with whatever family, and that sets you on a certain trajectory. And then at some point in your life, you have a transition. And that transition is basically any impactful occurrence. It could be, you know, the birth of another sibling. It could be moving to a new town. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be meeting somebody who has a big influence on your life, you know, meeting a friend who has either a positive or negative influence in some way, but that's a transition. And what happens is almost like a pinball, right? If you ever play pinball. <laughs> Anyways, so it's almost like a pinball, right? Like if you play pinball, the ball is on a certain trajectory until it hits something and that changes the trajectory. And then it hits something else and that changes the trajectory. And so our lives are a little like that. We're on a certain trajectory until we encounter some sort of event or relationship or thing that adjusts our trajectory. And the way I view it is we can either, like the pinball, we can either have a hands-off approach and these things just put our trajectory in whatever direction they put them, or we can roll up our sleeves and adjust that trajectory the way we want it right. to go. And so I, I uh, hey, Becca, happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> so, so for anybody who's listening or watching right now, um, I've contacted Becca and we're going to have her on a future episode to uh to tell her story as well but today is her birthday so everybody <laughs> and happy birthday thanks good to see you you too you too miss you guys miss you too so we were just just getting ready to wrap up and um i'll let let you have your husband back <laughs> thank you <laughs> ruben i wanted to, to thank you for coming on is really, I know you wouldn't say this, but courageous for you to come on and share such a, such a heart-wrenching story and, um, and allow yourself to be an example for other people who might be in need. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I appreciate you. And I also appreciate you for your service and your military career. So thank you. Thank you for serving. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Um, Appreciate you listening. And uh, if even one person can alter their trajectory, yeah, uh, then it's worth it. Yeah. You know, one person takes one thing from this, it's worth it. It's, I totally agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, what I normally do, Ruben, when I have people on who um, don't have their own sort of, you know, if they're not professional helpers, right, if they don't have their own sort of uh, social media pages geared toward this kind of thing is I usually say that if anybody has questions or comments or um, wants to get in touch with you about anything in this podcast that they can just message me through the Facebook pages or whatever and I will convey the messages to you does that that way you don't have to give out a personal email or anything right. like that. okay that's great perfect all right so for those folks who are um, either listening or watching this podcast, I want to say thank you so much for investing your time. Um, please feel free to like, comment, and share the podcast. Um, podcast is available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, and on Google Podcasts. Um, the video version is on YouTube, and the YouTube page is Growth and Thriving LLC. So please check us out there. Um, for those who are interested, I also uh, I have some Facebook communities. There's um, Growth and Thriving After Trauma, Thriving Fathers, Parenting After Trauma, and Leadership Skills for Survivors. Please feel free to join those groups and participate in those. Um, I'm always really happy with the sort of interactive community we have in those. They're uh, really energetic groups, not by my doing, but by the people who are in <laughs> So please uh, feel free to join those groups and participate. And last but not least, I have started a blog, um, which has a different theme from this podcast. It's a little more humorous. I swear a lot in it, um, but, uh, but it's a little funnier, but it's sort of the same theme. I use my life and some of my mistakes and my decisions 
as a lens through which I look at lessons learned and, and how to how to live, hopefully figure it out in some kind of way. The name of the um, blog is What the Fuck Am I Doing? And, <laughs> and, yeah, and the website, the website is www. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And the website is www.whatthefkamidoing.com. Uh, please feel free to go on there, subscribe, read, share, comment. Um, I always respond to comments. And so once again, thank you everybody so much. Happy birthday, Becca. Thank you. Uh, this for another moment is uh, Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak signing off. And I'll say just keep growing until you're thriving. Thanks, Ruben. Thank you. Thank you.